Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him in court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart or in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These are the words of our Savior, Jesus. God, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we seek to know more about you, your love, and your heart for us the commands of your words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. And I love the church. One of the things, not just this church, but just the church, Christ's church, and you know, I was struck today that so many of us come in here and we come in and we sit down and we're all coming from different places. We come sit in this room and we sing these songs and we're going to listen to the word preached and we're going to take communion and unite ourselves under Christ's death and his um, sacrifice for us, his resurrection. Uh, we're going to give, we're going to, we're going to commit ourselves to serve, uh, but we all come in here from different places, don't we? You know, as I was thinking this week, it's, it's fascinating me. I was watching, Chris and I were texting yesterday. We were both in a pretty bad place. I had my second vaccine shot yesterday, or Friday, and it wiped me out. And yesterday, I felt awful and was just laid up in bed all day thinking, man, I hope I can preach tomorrow. And Chris is going, I've completely lost my voice. I hope I can sing tomorrow. Um, last week, we got up here, and we did baby dedications, and we dedicated sweet little baby Claire over here and we all prayed for her and we committed to support her and pray for her and this week she's in the hospital. And we get to actually practice the things we talked about last week. 
Um, Stacy Tate asked her if she'd come read. Stacy has served in our public school system for years in our city, and she's actually retiring from Edmund Memorial uh, this week, and she's going to go and build a private practice counseling. And so she's in transition. We all got these things going on in our life, and I'm just reminded of the frailty of life and the uh, the temporary nature of the world in which we live. Another friend of mine um, texted me last night, and. Um, he, he trains pastors in another part, another region of the world. And as he was training there, he just said, would you pray for our part of the world that's just being so ravaged with COVID right now? And we're going to do that a little bit later in our service. Friends, as we lean in here a little bit, would you just, would you just not let this moment pass? But would you just see this moment as sacred? As we come together underneath the, the word of God, we just say, Jesus, in the, the frailty of our lives and the temporariness of our lives, would you show us what it is to trust you today? Um, would you teach us more about what it is to, be, to worship you with a whole heart? And that's the posture I think we want to come with today. So, well, Stacy read, um, and Stacy, thank you for doing that. Um, you know, and I just am reminded, even as we think about the frailty of life, I've got two boys that are about to graduate from high school next week. And so I'm sending my two oldest off into the world. And so I think I'm feeling this with probably a little more intensity. Honestly, I'm kind of freaking out a little bit because we're going through all the lasts. I mean, we had the last track meet and the last round of finals and the last, um, you know, just one last thing after another as they're finishing up their high school career about to be launched out into the world. And in that, my, you know, you just, you look at your kids and you've got so many hopes and dreams and you're excited for them, excited for the challenges that are ahead. But you also just know what life is like and the ups and downs and the peaks and valleys and all the things that await them in the days ahead. And so I'm excited for them. I'm gonna miss them at the same time. As they get older, they become kind of your best buds. And so there's a part of that that you just feel the, the tension of those things. Um, and yet I'm excited. But obviously I've got graduation on the brain. So here's what I wanna do today. I wanna to start with actually an audio clip from a sermon that's probably the most famous commencement address given in my lifetime. A guy named David Foster Wallace, who's a writer, an artist, and a professor, uh, gave a speech on May 21st, 2005, uh, that was called This Is Water, and it was later published. And in this speech, it's just a, it's a poignant and powerful speech. It's always struck me. But here's the thing. Wallace was not a believer in Jesus Christ. But like most artists, most great artists, he, he, had, a, he had an eye in it to observe the world and see the way the world worked, and he called up something that he was able to observe that I think um, gave him, he just had a unique ability to see and to feel things in our world in a unique way. So in this clip we're gonna listen to, I just want you to listen to a little bit of the audio. They don't have video left over from this thing that's become so famous and now has millions and millions of views. But he begins talking about the danger of what he calls living in default mode. That we go through this unconscious existence of default mode of our lives and we just keep moving from one place to another to another unconsciously according to what, we calls, what he called our inner default. And the problem with our inner default setting is that it may not lead us to a very good place. He goes on to say that we need to set aside our default path and become more well-adjusted to find a better, a better place in which to, to, to build our lives. So listen to the intensity of just what he says in this 30-second clip. This, I submit, is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. 
in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And isn't that interesting? For a guy who's not, who, who, who's not a believer in, in Jesus, not a subscriber to any, any real religion, he looks at the world and he says, everyone worships. There is no such thing in our world as a person who does not worship. Everyone worships. The only choice we have is what it is we worship. He goes on to to warn us about the danger of worshiping the wrong thing. He says, if you worship the wrong thing, it will literally eat you alive. He says, if you worship money and things, you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you, uh, start, start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship intellect, you'll wanting, wanting to be seen as smart, you will always feel stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And isn't it amazing the insight he has into human nature and the way in which we operate? We chase these things, we seek these things, we desire these things, and we run after them, and they never lead us to a place of true flourishing and fulfillment. They always create a bigger hole. The default modes of our heart naturally lead us, he says, to destructive places that eat us alive. Now, of course, it's easier to diagnose problems than it is to find solutions, right? I mean, one of the great things artists do is they, they ask really good questions. They don't always point us to very good answers, and that was true of David Foster Wallace as well. Why did I mention all that to, the, to you today? See, 2,000 years ago, before, 2,000 years before Wallace's speech, Jesus was addressing these same questions in his Sermon on the Mount. He was pointing us to what the good life looked like, what the full life looked like, what a life of flourishing and wholeness and shalom, as the Bible calls it, looks like. And Jesus is going to invite us to adjust our lives and move towards a a more real, full life. But Jesus does more than just diagnose our problems. In the Sermon on the Mount, he actually casts a vision for wholeness of life, for flourishing, for what the good life is. And he tells us and points us in a direction of how how to move in that way. Now, in one sense, Jesus would agree with what David Foster Wallace said, that if we choose to operate in the default mode of our lives, which the Bible calls sin, then we're going to move into, move into destructive paths that continually trap us. And as Jesus is going to talk about today, we're going to see they trap us in anger, lust, relational brokenness, self-deception, desire for vengeance. We get stuck in these traps when we're in default mode. We have to adjust and begin to move in a new direction. So friends, I want to ask you, um, I want to ask you a question to consider today. Where are you aiming your worship? If we're all worshipers, we have to choose what we're going to worship. Where are you aiming your worship? Where do your actions say your worship is aimed? Where do your attitudes say your worship is aimed? Does your worship belong wholly to God? Well, let's, let's look at what Jesus says here and see what we can figure out. So as we go, think about Sermon on the Mount, think back to me, what kind of where we've been as we unpacked Matthew chapter five, and then we're gonna move into six and seven, and that's gonna be kind of where we spend this series. Matthew five, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, and Beatitudes really show us the path to go down in order to find a life of flourishing. And so this is the, the Jesus way. How we can live the good life is to 
work our way through the Beatitudes and live the Beatitude kind of life. Then Jesus goes and says, if a group of people lives in the Beatitude kind of life, they become the, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so as you get down to verses 13 to 16, Jesus says, when we live this way, we shine brightly and tell people and reflect the, the light of Christ to the world in which we live. Then last week, we looked at the thesis statement for really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of the theme that Jesus laid out for us. And we're going to unpack some of that today. But we talked about this thesis statement of unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What was the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes? Jesus, if you look a little bit later in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, there's this whole chapter full of woes. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you're like whitewashed tombed. You've cleaned up the outside, but there's death on the inside. You're like, you're like something that's got poison in a cup, but you polished the outside of the cup and made it look really pretty. But it's not gonna actually produce life because the, the outside, you're worried about the appearance of the outward behavior, but your heart is far from me, meaning you're a cultural Christian. You, you press in and follow all the rules, but you don't really love God with a whole heart. And so there's a discrepancy, there's a hypocrisy, there's a difference that's there. And so Jesus pushes on the scribes and the Pharisees. And here he's going to say, unless we have a righteousness that's bigger than that, that's deeper than that, we're not going to... Um, to, to truly walk in the way of Jesus. So in the verses that follow here in uh, the rest of uh, this section, Jesus is gonna take that theme and he's gonna say, now let me show you six examples, six practical ways this works itself out. And these six are not exhaustive. They're not the only ones. He's gonna say, let me just pick six ways that people tend to struggle with this. And I wanna show you these examples. And each one of these, he's gonna show how this principle gets worked out in, the, in terms of our lives. And he wants us to understand that it's not just the outward action, but the inner attitudes and behaviors and motivations that, that drive our hearts that, that the Lord really cares about. He cares about the whole me and the whole you. And so these six things are broken into, into two triads, three, two, two groups of three. I'm gonna take the first three today and we're gonna walk through those. And as we look at each of these three examples that Jesus gives, in each one of them, he follows the same pattern. He's gonna give a statement of the law. So he's gonna say, you've heard it said, and he's gonna give you a statement of the law. Then he's gonna give you the true intent of the law. He's saying, but I say to you, and he's gonna give you the true intent of the law. And then he's gonna give us a practical application for how that should work out in life. And so each of these three examples, he's gonna follow those three steps and kind of follow that pattern. So let's look at example number one. Uh, the first example is murder and anger. Uh, the statement of the law that Jesus gives, he says, you've heard it said uh, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Uh, the, the you shall not murder is the sixth commandment of the 10 commandments. So he goes back to the 10 commandments and he gives you the sixth one. He says, you shall not murder. You've heard it said that is true. That's the law. Then he's gonna go down and show you the true intent of the law. Verse 22, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Meaning it's not enough just not to cross the line of murder and killing someone, but it's wrong in the intent of the law is that it's wrong even just to hate someone, to be disgusted with someone. Now, that makes you a little bit uh, uncomfortable, right? I mean, any of you admit you've been angry today? Since you got to church even, or on the way to church, or getting ready for church. So like, it's not hard to slide into uh, this space. And sometimes we feel pretty good. And you're like, dude, I have not killed any of my children. 
Um, and so you start to feel pretty good about yourself. And then Jesus goes, but have you been angry? Because to be angry with your children is to be set on the path that could lead that way. And the ultimate end of murder is obviously death, not just in the sense of the death of that individual, but sin, the wages of sin is death. So if we're on the path of sin, then ultimately there's a, a direct in, in our hearts that's pointing towards, uh, towards dying. And so uh, here's, here's the thing. It, it's interesting to me, when you look at this passage, a lot of the later versions of the Bible, the, uh, the kind of translations that came a little bit later, they snuck in this little phrase that said that... Um, it just said without cause, that everyone who's angry without cause will be liable to judgment. Because I think they were squirming too, right? I mean, we squirm, we're like, well, yeah, but there's sometimes where I'm right to be angry. And yes, there is a righteous anger. Uh, there, there is a place for that that's true. The problem is most of the time when we're feeling that way isn't really righteous anger. Most of the time we're feeling that way is I feel justified in my anger towards you because I think you're wrong and I think I'm better. And so I'm standing my ground. It's fascinating to me. They were squirming in, in Jesus' day too. He was beginning to poke on them in some ways that made them uncomfortable. So all agree though that murder is wrong. No one's debating that at all. It's just when you go beyond that, Jesus steps a little past that and says, beyond the act of killing, the real issue underneath murder gets to the attitudes and the inner disposition of our heart. What's going on in here that points in the direction of ultimate destruction. And so uh, he says, it's not just those who pull the trigger that are guilty of sin, but everyone who's angry, everyone who insults someone, everyone who calls a man a fool. Uh, the word for insults here is uh, really talking about a contempt for a person's head. It has to do with the word empty. So it's like you're empty headed, you're air headed, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're just, it's like calling someone stupid or, or worthless. And so that's when it talks about that word insults, that's what it's talking about is that you're calling someone worthless because you think there's nothing in their heads that's a value. Uh, and the word says, whoever calls a man a fool, the word there um, speaks more to contempt of their heart and character. It's calling someone a, a good for nothing, a loser, a jerk. Uh, so it's, uh, one has to do with kind of their head and their intelligence and the way you see that. The other has to do with their heart and their character and the way that they're living and your contempt for them in those areas. And Jesus says it's not okay to walk in anger, to walk in contempt, uh, to walk in kind of bullying or insulting another person who's been made in the image of God. And that gets a little closer to home, doesn't it? That starts to crowd in a little bit more on us. And what he's saying is that when you look at another person in disgust, when you insult them, when you humiliate them, you're treating them as though they are dead to you. This isn't murder, but Jesus says it's on the same path. It's, out, it's coming out of the same kind of a heart. That you're treating them as though they're not of value. You're treating them as though they, they don't deserve to exist. And Jesus says it's not enough to stop short of killing them. We have to actually love our neighbor as ourselves. So he's not just drawing a negative line that says don't cross this. He's pointing us in a positive direction. It says be like this. Let your heart be in this kind of a way. So you may think you're so far from murderers and so far above murderers, but you, wish the, you have wished the people around you were dead before. Um, you've, you've driven by a guy and wished he'd have taken a turn off into, off into the side of the road, right? I mean, you've had those thoughts in your head. Um, this gets to the heart, doesn't it? I love what Dallas Willard, Willard says. He says, I'm practicing the, the discipline of 
not having to have the last word. See, there's an acknowledgement in what he says there of my default mode makes me want to win every argument and to put them down and put them in their place. I have to practice the discipline and adjust myself to learn a new way in order to create something that's flourishing. You ever notice what Jesus did when he was attacked and insulted? First Peter says this, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Because of his confidence in his heavenly father, he didn't have to revile back. He didn't have to cut down when he was threatened. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, it's, it's good not to murder. Okay, we all good there? Everyone clear? That's a good thing. Don't do that. Um, but Jesus is saying it's not just enforcing the, the rules. It's not enough just not to stick a shiv in someone's back. That if you're gonna truly walk in the Jesus way, you have to learn to love someone. You have to learn the positive character and virtue as well. And so he's fostering this character and this virtue. And, he, and Jesus is calling us to follow, calling his followers to change their hearts and their attitudes and their, uh, their outlooks on life. Uh, the goal is that we would become aligned to God's nature, to God's will, to God's design for the universe, because that's what's gonna ultimately bring flourishing, not just for us, but for everyone. And that's the vision that God has and he's putting in front of us here. So let's get to the practical applications. So verses 23 to 26, he's gonna begin to say, let me show you what this looks like. And he gives us two practical applications. One is relationships within the church or within God's people. And the second one is gonna be relationships within business. Um, and one's gonna have to do with those who are your brothers and sisters. Another one's gonna have to do with someone who you might view as an enemy. And so in both cases, the situation is the same. We've wronged someone. And in both cases, the answer is the same, which is quickly go and make it right. So relationships in the church, <clears throat> this is dealing with a brother or sister. And Jesus is going to, again, deal with the inward and outward aspects of obedience. Here, he's gonna deal with the, the vertical relationship with God and say that's connected to the horizontal relationship we have with one another, which later Jesus says, all the law can be summed up in two commandments, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus kind of works that out here in a practical way. And he says, your worship is worthless if you're walking in anger and avoiding dealing with interpersonal conflict. So stop what you're doing, go out and make it right with your brother. Now, uh, as Stacy read, you may remember the example that he gave. He says, if you're at the altar and you're about to make a sacrifice, stop, leave the animal there and go away and make it right. Now, that sounds easy and you've probably read that before. If you've been in church, you may have heard that before. Or maybe it's just such a weird example that we don't get it. But let me just, let me just show you how serious Jesus was about this. Imagine you lived in Galilee and you lived about 80 miles away from Jerusalem. Where was the altar where you had to make a sacrifice? It was Jerusalem. So you had to travel that 80 miles to go to Jerusalem. You had to either bring an animal for sacrifice or purchase an animal there to be sacrificed at the altar. And Jesus says, let's just say by example that you're at the altar and you're, you've waited through the line of all the people throughout the nation that have come to make sacrifices and you've waited your turn. It's worse than Disneyland. You've got bleeding animals and crying babies and uh, smelly stuff. And you've waited all this time to get to the point where you finally get to give your sacrifice. And just as you get to the altar, you go, oh, I really wronged Jimmy and we've got a, he really is mad at me. And I don't feel like we've really resolved that situation. What's Jesus say to do? Leave your animal there at the altar, go find Jimmy, make it right. 
So in this case, that means the animal that you bought or delivered, walked that 80 miles, you leave it there, and then you go 80 miles back, which uh, then you find Jimmy, and you say, Jimmy, you need to make it right. Then you come 80 miles back, and then you sacrifice that animal again. That means you, you just lost a week getting there, and then you spent about a week going back and a week coming, uh, coming back to Jerusalem so that you can fulfill your sacrifice. Do you think Jesus was serious about this? You think as uh, they heard Jesus talking about this, that they would be like, well, hold on. Like, you just mean like if we live in Jerusalem, right? Not like if we have to go all the way home. But Jesus, I think, specifically gave a difficult one. Friends, do you take your relationships in the church seriously? Jesus, Jesus seemed to. Uh, does Jesus seem to care who is right and wrong in this situation? No, he says, just if you remember there's an issue, you leave and you go make it right. There's a call that's a hard call for us here. Later in the New Testament, the same principles applied to the Lord's Supper communion. It says, if we come to the table, we remember that there's something we need to go and make it right with our brother and sister. Um, the second example he gives is kind of a conflict in business or in community. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. So this is someone who's coming at you. They're your accuser. He says, come to terms, and there's a key word there, quickly. The focus of this one really is on uh, the speed and the immediacy that he says, go and do it. And really it's dealing with a man who owed money and couldn't repay his debts. And in their world, if you, if you owed someone money and couldn't repay, they could take you and throw you in debtor's prison where you'd have to work off that time until you paid your debts off and then you could get out. And so in that, Jesus is saying, look, go make it right now. Find some money, beg, beg and borrow until you get there and get the situation fixed so that you don't have to make, so that things don't get worse. Don't string things out and hope they go away on their own. Do any of you feel that way with conflict? I mean, you can be honest, like conflict comes and you go, you know, if I just watch another Netflix special, maybe it'll just resolve itself. Like you get, in a, you get in a fight with your spouse and you think, and if we just get the kids to bed, maybe it'll all just kind of go away. Um, a lot of us deal with conflict that way. And what Jesus says is go quickly, go now, make it right. Both these examples push us in that direction. Friends, is Jesus stepping on your toes yet? Yeah, it's going to get worse. Uh, now Jesus goes from the sixth commandment to the seventh commandment. And in this, he's moving from murder to adultery. And the, Jesus starts off, he takes two really biggies, uh, really big sins that everyone knows about. And he's going to take things a step further. He's saying to us, don't think that flourishing is just not sticking a shiv in someone's back or not, uh, not swapping wives around the neighborhood. That, that somehow it goes beyond that. And if we're going to truly be flourishing and whole, we're going to have to go beyond just the, the simple um, negative part of the law to actually build something positive. And let's be honest, all of us are guilty on these counts of anger and of lust. We may not be guilty of murder and adultery, but all of us get caught in anger and in lust. Jesus wants whole hearts, not divided hearts. So let's, in, in verses 27 to 30, uh, we see the, kind of this next section as he unpacks it. And in that, uh, the, the statement of the law, he says is, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh of the 10 commandments. And so Jesus uh, moves from the sixth to the seventh in that then he goes and shows the true intent of the law. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in, in his heart. <clears throat> What's the key phrase in that statement of Jesus? It's in his heart. Jesus constantly goes back to the heart he says, it's not just not crossing external lines and following the rules that I want. I want your whole heart to be worshipful and to, to, to pursue me. And so 
Um, he cares about the whole you and he wants, he, what he wants for us is not just what we do, but he cares about who we are, not just on the outside, but what's going on on the inside. And Jesus is gonna press in on us there. So here he's given us a warning, not just about the outcome, but about the seed of sin. saying, don't just worry about the fruit that shows up one day, but worry about the seed of wrongdoing and wrong attitudes and wrong desires that's in your heart so that you learn to align yourself with him. You know, this was already there in the law. And Jesus is not abolishing law. He's actually just explaining it and showing us the true intent and, and fulfilling it. But in the seventh commandment said, you, sh you shall not covet. And it specifically lists, you shall not cover your, neighbor, your neighbor's wife. Now, to covet is not to take. To covet is to want. Jesus uh, says in the, in the Ten Commandments, God already was, beginning, was dealing with our heart and with our desires and with the things that we want in here and saying, sometimes the things in here are not right. And that default setting needs... And so he's, um, one thing I do want to say to you is Jesus isn't saying that all sins are equal, right? He's saying all, all sins are damaging, but he's not saying all sins are equal. Uh, to sleep with your neighbor's wife is worse than to look at your neighbor's wife. To kill your neighbor is worth, worse than insulting your neighbor. Those things are worse, but he is trying to push on us and understand, help us understand what a healthy and whole person looks like. It's not just avoiding the really gross sins, but it's about becoming the kind of person who truly flourishes under God's care and under his correction. So Jesus is calling us both to wholeness and to holiness. He cares about what's in here and he cares about how we live out here. Both wholeness and holiness matter to Jesus. And it's when those two get, uh, get out of order, when we have one without the other, that we get ourselves in trouble. Um, so to grow in these, friends, is going to be a real fight. Sanctification is always a battle for us to align our hearts with Jesus' heart and with the, heart of, with the heart of God. So let's look at the practical application. Practical application of what Jesus said, and you may remember this is pretty, uh, a pretty famous section where he talks about if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Um, that's tough, right? Um, what's, the, what's the practical application? What Jesus is saying is something he says throughout the whole gospels. Get rid of anything that divides your heart and keeps you from wholehearted devotion to God. Anything that gets in your way, rid your life of it unload it, shed it, throw it in the trash. Now, some have taken this literally, a guy named Origen that uh, lived around, I think he was born 195 and died around 250. Um, Origen uh, took this literally and actually castrated himself so that he wouldn't ever be able to sin in, in a lustful sort of a way. Um, I don't think that's the point here. So if you're, if you're inclined to follow that path, I'm gonna say don't. Uh, as John Stott said, it's not mutilation, but mortification that Jesus is getting at. Mortification is the biblical term for, uh, for killing the sin in our lives. Uh, one of the old Puritans, John Owen, famously said, is be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So you need to slay the sin that's in your heart. Otherwise, that sin that's in your heart will be killing you. It'll be being destruction for you. Anything that fights against the wholeness or holiness of your life is your enemy. Anything that directs your worship away from God is a foe that you need to eradicate and vanquish. And so there's that battle that takes place within the Christian life and the consistent principle Jesus comes back to over and over again is anything that gets between you and God, get rid of it. Whether it's greed and riches, whether it's racism and bigotry, uh, whether, it's, uh, whether, whether it's power and influence, anything that gets between you and God, you need to set aside because the pursuit of God is the thing that matters. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, that's the mortification part, right? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, uh, 
which is idolatry. Do you see that Jesus is wrestling with our inner motives and desires? Not just with our external behavior. He says anything that distracts your worship, anything that aims your worship and your heart and your hunger and your desire and your seeking towards something that's not the Lord, set it aside so that you can wholly pursue the Lord. He's speaking about the danger of a divided heart. What he's saying is to truly flourish in this life, you have to have a heart, you have to have a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees. What was the Pharisees' problem? They followed all the external rules and they, they, they performed well according to cultural Christianity. But God said, your heart was far from me. Meaning you looked right on the outside, but you didn't really love me and you didn't really love people. Something was missing. And we're never gonna get to a place of flourishing if we live in that sort of a way. So let's look at one more example today. Remember that uh, this list is not exhaustive. Jesus just, he picked six examples and said, let me just show you six ways this works itself out. And this principle works itself out. And these are representative of our, of our struggle. And, and he's calling us to that, that righteousness is super holy religious people or righteous people, right? Uh, so this next example, maybe the one that's most sensitive for us to deal with, as he begins to deal with divorce, um, let me say up front that I, I'm not gonna talk about all the ins and outs and um, rights and wrongs of divorce and everything that is. I actually did preach about that when we went through the gospel of Mark. And if you really wanna know what the Bible says about that, I unpacked a lot more of that there. And so you can go back online and find that sermon and track through those things there. Here, what I wanna say, or before we get into that today, I just wanna say that Jesus came with an offer of forgiveness and grace that's bigger than anything we can comprehend. And wherever you've been in life, I'm confident that the love of God is, is, is here and ready to receive you and, and that you can trust him with everything in your life and bring it to him. So that, that grace and that forgiveness always undergirds everything that we, that we talk about, including this topic and anything else. So I want, I want to say that up front. Um, but here, what I want to do today is I just want to focus really on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. His main idea, the main point that he's trying to drive out and push out in the sermon here in as we think about what that, how that relates to wholehearted devotion uh, that, that leads to true human flourishing. And so Jesus is gonna talk about, he's not really talking about divorce. He's kind of, in a sense, more, more so talking about remarriage. It is really the focus of what he's talking about here, but both of those go hand in hand together. So uh, you may notice that I call this example divorce and half-hearted love. The reason is that's where he's gonna go. Jesus does something a little different with this example than he does with the other two. It's a little bit shorter. He doesn't follow exactly the same pattern and he doesn't give us as much practical application to this one as he did to the last two. And so as we, as we think about this, let me just show you the difference between, or why I called it half-hearted love. And I wanna show you the difference between wholehearted love and half-hearted love. Let me ask you this. Any of you give wedding vows that look like this? I, so-and-so, take you, so-and-so, to be my lawfully wedded wife, uh, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, for in, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others to cleave only to you to death to us part. See, those are wholehearted vows, right? Just says, I'm all yours. And, and so there's this commitment. Now, ladies, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if your man modified his vows to say this? I, so-and-so, take you, so-and-so, to be my lawfully wedded uh, wife, uh, to have and to hold on most days, for better or worse, unless it's really bad, for richer or poorer, unless it's really poor, in sickness and in health, unless you're really sick, forsaking most others, to cleave only to you most of the time, till death do us part, or I find someone better. Um, any of you, like if, if your husband showed up and tried to pull that 
that day on your wedding, actually, he probably wouldn't be your husband, right? Like, if he showed up and tried to pull that on your wedding day, you're probably going, uh, time out, right? Because no one wants a marriage built on half-hearted love. And yet we, we present things sometimes in our world like this is what marriage is. It's a 50-50 deal. And as long as I'm getting some out of it and you're getting some out of it, it's good for both of us, then we'll stick it out. But as soon as it doesn't really work for both of us, then we're gonna approach it. And what Jesus says is that's never gonna lead to a truly flourishing marriage. A truly, marriage truly flourishes only when we're all in for one another. Only when I say, man, you've got all of me. Heart, soul, everything that, I, that is my life is yours and vice versa. That's what marriage is intended to be. That's what, what, it, what a marriage that's, that flourishes according to God's design is intended to be. And that's what Jesus is really saying here is as long as your devotion is divided, you're never going to be, experience the, the fullness of life that he wants you to experience. So let's look at what Jesus says. This is a shorter statement. He modifies it a little bit. The statement, uh, the statement of the law, verse 31, he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is actually not a commandment. The other two came directly out of the 10 commandments. This is actually a statement that's given out of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy uh, it, 24 to 1 to 4, it says, it is not so much concerned with whether divorce is right or wrong, but what cases are permissible. And in this case, uh, what Deuteronomy said was, if a divorce has already happened, the man's required to give a certificate of divorce to the woman. Now, why, was, why is that the case? In the time of the Old Testament, it was almost impossible for a woman who had suffered through divorce to provide for herself. Uh, socially, religiously, monetarily, it was almost impossible for her to make it. And so uh, the, sometimes um, men in that day treated women more or less as property. And they said, well, I've had enough of you. And they would cast her aside and they'd go find someone else and fill that, fill that void with another woman. And what, that, what Moses was doing is not giving a command, he was giving a concession, saying for when, when this has already happened because of the hardness of hearts, you're required to give a certificate, which frees her then to go marry someone else. And so it was actually a sign of protection for them. But what had happened in Jesus' day was uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes had, had nuanced this law so much that they had kind of worked out and said, well, the law says this, and let me tell you what that really means. And they created all these other kind of subsets of the law that explained the way the law would work. And in that day, um, this was a hot button issue. So a little bit later, I'm just gonna, I wanna go, there just quickly, but we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time there. Matthew 19, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and test him by asking and say, is it lawful to divorce a man, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And that phrase for any cause means not just when she has abandoned you for, to, for someone else sexually, but for any reason whatsoever. And the Pharisees and scribes had worked it out so that, in fact, one of the old uh, kind of subset, sub laws that they had written says that if she burns your meals or if you just find someone you think's better, you can, dis you can divorce your wife and not feel guilty about that. Now, I don't know about y'all, but in my house, uh, making toast is a fire hazard. And so like we could have been past that boundary a long time ago, um, both on my part or my wife's part. Um, that's not a good grounds for marriage. Just gonna say that. Uh, out loud. But that was really where they were. And what Jesus says is, um, no, it's not okay to, dis to discard a wife for any cause. In fact, Jesus does this brilliant thing and he skips around what their question was and says, let me just show you God's heart. And he goes back to Genesis. And, and so in Genesis 1, you see that God made them male and female. He created and designed these two to be helpmates for one another. And then in Genesis 2, uh, he gives this um, 
statement. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, not ashamed. They were externally wed, but they were also internally together in their unity towards one another. And so it's um, it, it really, Jesus is gonna begin to push on this. And what he's saying in this passage, as you look at the text, is it's a little bit confusing for us, but he says that anyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's the point he's getting at here? He's saying if you've already wed yourself and become one flesh with another, you can't be one flesh with, with one woman and then be one flesh with another woman. It doesn't work that way. And so once you're together, you need to be together. And that's the heart in, uh, behind what he's saying. God's design was a whole heart union between one man and one woman. So practically, what is it Jesus saying? What's the outworking of this? He's really just saying, ideally, divorce would be obsolete. Ideally, this would never happen. That when it does happen, it's because of the brokenness and hardness of our hearts. That this is never God's design. That if we function completely according to God's design, then there would be... There would be um, a fullness and a flourishing of marriage. And so in this, going back to that Deuteronomy passage, what he's saying is that was never what God intended. He didn't command for divorce to happen in that case. It was a concession to the hardness of heart, but God's desire is for, uh, for flourishing. And the only way marriages truly flourish is if we have wholehearted devotion to one another that's not going to be divided and given, given away to someone else. And do you see how that works? You see how Jesus is pressing in on us here? Let's go to uh, how we apply this to our lives. What does this look like as we think about this? What, what was Jesus' biggest problem with the Pharisees? That the outside didn't match the inside. That they, they, had, they had this division that was going on in their life. You polish everything on the outside, but your heart's far from me. And what Jesus says is, no, I want the whole you. In our world, we oftentimes turn that around and we don't baptize or polish up the outside. We just call the inside good. And we say, whatever desires and feelings and, uh, and, and wants that you have in your heart, you need to express those and let those out. And then the world needs to affirm those as something that's good. And so we live in what's called this age of authenticity. And then that, we, we, the, 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 the world in which we live is saying everything on the inside needs to let itself out and be affirmed on the outside because what's on the outside and the inside should go together. In some way, Jesus was saying the same, the same thing. What's on the outside and what's on the inside need to go together. What's different here is Jesus saying what's on the inside needs to be adjusted to and aligned to who God is. That what's on the inside of us is not merely to be affirmed, but what is on the inside of us, we can't run in our default mode called sin, but we need to adjust who we are so that we align our lives to God's nature, to God's will, to God's heart, to God's desire, to God's plans for our lives. In whatever area of your life, these are just examples. You could take any other area of your life and that's God's heart for you. I want all of you, I want your heart and I want what comes out of your heart to align with who I am and with my plan for the, for the world. Friends, in the end, our self-driven ways, our default mode of living, only creates resistance to the life of flourishing God wants for us. God wants us to flourish, and a spiritually whole person longs for God, longs for God's beauty, longs to look like Christ, longs to, uh, to flourish like Christ, longs for the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit and the maturity that the Spirit brings and the transformation that the Spirit can work in our hearts so that our hearts are more knit to his heart. So friends, let me come back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Where do you aim your worship? Where is your heart aimed today? Is your heart 
Does it wholly belong to the Lord? Or is your heart divided and going in lots of different directions? You know what causes anxiety in your life? When your heart's aiming at two different things. Because your heart can only go one place at a time. And Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And everything else will be given to you. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray for myself. Would you help us to take Jesus' words seriously? Would you help us not just to be Christians who are cultural Christians, polished on the outside, but whose hearts are far from you? Would you help us to aim our hearts at you, to worship you wholeheartedly, that we'd rid ourselves of anything that would get between us and you, Lord, and help us to pursue you with all that we are. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this Redemption Sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.